So, hello, I'm Alex Rockkeen. I'm a barrister at Thurston and Essex Chambers specialising in medical capacity law. And I'm really, really pleased to have with me virtually in my shed today, Jill Loomis Quinn. Um, I always think it's really important for people who I'm talking to to introduce themselves rather than me trying to project onto them what I think they are. So, without any further ado, if I could hand over to you, Jill, and allow you to introduce yourself to people. Um, yeah, so um, thanks, Alex. Um, I'm Jill Looms Quinn and I'm a disabled um, scholar activist and artist. Um, my, my background really is in advocacy, so um, community advocacy, um, particularly focusing on kind of um, peer advocacy around autism. Um, I'm autistic myself. Um, but at the moment, I'm in the process of finishing finishing my PhD thesis <laughs> which um, which looks at um, the Mental Capacity Act and um, how it works in practice um, kind of with a particular focus on um, what the MCA means for its implications for how it impacts on um, the idea of disabled voice in inverted commas so you know using the term voice very loosely um to kind of mean sort of um individual and collective kind of um presence um sort of epistemic autonomy that that kind of thing um yeah so so that's me sort of generally um and what um the kind of part of my research that i'm that i'm really focusing on at the moment and what i think i think we're going to talk about today is um study that I've done that looks at the um, the views of um, of disabled people particularly disabled activists around um, the uh, um, around advanced decision making so advanced decisions to refuse treatment and lasting power of attorney um, and yeah I think that that's kind of that's the that's the of all the, the sort of bits of my PhD research that's the bit that I think kind of feels most personal and where sort of some of the issues around um, navigating the the sort of the the terrain and the tension sometimes around um, the MCA and disabled identity and disabled community are kind of they feel heightened um, and also the my sort of my jumping off point for the research was a very personal one because it was about thinking about how I would sort of approached and navigated making my own advanced decision um, some of the kind of issues that I grappled with and basically wanting to know what other disabled people felt um, and and likewise alongside that having a very um, a very sort of practical activist focus of wanting to look at how we might be able to support disabled people um, individually and collectively to kind of access their rights to make decisions in advance. Um, because unlike so much else for in, in a disabled person's life, we're, we're kind of so used to having to um, fight for things and sort of get, have those kind of those, those like wins that are not on the table, if you see what I mean. Um, and advanced decisions are already there. They're something that we 
we've got they're you know that that they're kind of they're already in the bag um so from a kind of equality perspective i want to look at how we as disabled people kind of access that existing right gosh there's so many questions which spring to my mind <laughs> arising out of that it's brilliant thank you just just sort of ground it a little bit methodologically or just just mm -hmm. so people understand where you're coming from in terms of you, you you you're well through your phd and this is an aspect of your phd so mm -hmm. how are you how how have you been picking up on the advanced decision bit in particular so you mentioned so the advanced you mentioned the other bit so so let us sort of paint that picture for us so um, the advanced decision study itself is based on um, interviews with um, 14 disabled activists. So that's a um, quite a widespread of impairments represented. Um, fairly reasonably widespread of age from about 25 to mid 50s. I would have liked to have talked to old people um, who kind of identify as disabled and are engage, approaching advanced decisions because I think that's a kind of maybe a different sort of there are maybe some different issues there um, but that didn't happen um, it was um, a lot of kind of reaching out to people who who I already knew and then sort of snowballing from there so I think sort of necessarily the, the sample was kind of a bit a bit sort of framed around that um, so it is very much sort of um, interview focused, um, discussion focused, and that actually kind of raised um, raised some issues as well. Because um, so one of the things that I decided to do from the start was to actually provide people with provide interviewees with with some basic information about mm -hmm. advanced decisions per attorney. Um, because obviously we know in sort of in the general population that they're not that well known or well understood. Um, and I didn't want to just get a load of data that basically says, look, disabled people don't know anything because that wasn't going to be very helpful um, or very interesting conversation either. So I sent the kind of the, um, the, the information leaflets that Compassion and Dying have, have put together um, because that, they seem to be the resources that, that people sort of tend to go to and to be pointed towards. Um, and I think really that there were kind of two, two things, two issues, not issues as in problems, but two reasons why I did that and things that, that kind of came from that. Um, so the first one was that, that it was a helpful way of providing information. So we had some common ground to talk from, but also I think because because I was coming at this subject, this topic, from a position of, um, of, of it not occurring in a social vacuum, um, of, of kind of advanced decisions as a topic existing in a world um, in which um, disability is, is, an, is a kind of um, often a stigmatized category and, and a, a sort of troubled sort of identity category and so much of that comes from how we how we talk and how we interact about subjects and, and discourses what we write that kind of thing so obviously giving people information in the form of kind of text is in a way it's kind of it's kind of reproducing that that issue it's it's kind of 
performing that. So some of the discussion kind of touched on um, what people thought about that as a form of information and how it might be some of the like different phrasings, the different sort of points of that were that were maybe important to disabled people that weren't represented and some of the things that were kind of that that concerned them. So can you draw that out a little bit? I'm really interested in that. So as it were, what 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 things were concerning to them and what things did they feel weren't in there which should have been? So I think um I think one of the things that was that that came up was the idea that um so that the that the sort of information and the dis, the sort of decision making guide process some of it was very focused on um kind of specific treatments mm -hmm. whereas people wanted to know or wanted to sort of think about their decision more in the context of um how their life would look um around those treatments yeah. um so kind of much more of a socially situated and, and kind of everyday life situated model of, of kind of decision making um things like the kinds of support that might be available to manage specific treatments or the the sort of the consequences of treatments um things like that um also um this is where my mind goes totally blank so just give me a minute um yeah sorry so no, i was gonna say either we i mean but just on maybe just on that first point though i mean mm -hmm. just, just run with that if i might for a second i mean that's very interesting because is that a because the, the very mechanism of advanced decision to refuse treatment mm. i mean the law looks like it's talking about specific individual treatments yeah and it sounds to me like what you're saying is that people are saying, well, that's not really kind of what, it's not, that's not what I'm interested in. Um, there was, I think that that was part of something that came out of when people were, were kind of talking about the topic in general, obviously, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of woven into the fabric of kind of disability rights discourse that we think about social barriers and about um, kind of, things that might be done to make life better in certain circumstances um i mean i i can see two sides to this so i can see the side of me that thinks yes of course we need to think about about the kind of the access to support and care side of decision making because of course none of us make decisions in a vacuum we're all kind of but i think also I mean, one of the things I, I wrote an article on my blog a while ago, where I was kind of setting out why I've been drawn to this topic in any way. And, and it was really about, um, I approached it from a perspective of having been offered in inverted commas treatments um, to do with my, my own impairments where I'd actually wanted to refuse the treatment. I mean, I, I started the blog with the sentence, when I was 13, doctors wanted to break my jaw. Um, and it was kind of, it was a discussion about the, my experience of, of clinicians wanting to do things because they could do them um, and because it was possible and for kind of cosmetic reasons that weren't part of my, my kind of view, my mindset. Um, you know the idea of kind of the i guess the sort of medical perfectionism idea of of kind of 
you know, this is what a draw should look like. So we're going to make yours try to look like that. Um, rather than kind of thinking about the implications in terms of how I live my life and, and you know, that, that kind of perspective. So I was approaching it from that sort of perspective of lots of us do have experiences of being offered treatments that actually we, um, we wouldn't necessarily want. And actually, sorry, this, go, this takes me to another part of the data mm. as well. I'm not going to apologise to go going no, to the data that's the good bit um, but um, that was one thing that really has kind of come out of my data that when when we talk about the idea of the right to refuse treatment I think from a legal perspective it's it's very it's easy to kind of think that I mean that is set in stone we have the right to refuse treatment right so that that sort of seems to be an end to it but actually when when we talk about refusing treatment and when the people I was interviewing were talking about that it was never, it didn't seem to be ever that clear cut in the sense that um, some people had been offered, for example, um, encouraged to have talking therapy um, when actually what they wanted was maybe medication for, to, um, um, for a mental health condition, but sort of accepting the talking therapy as a way to get the medication or mm. things like... Um, one person, um, their treating consultant had refused to um, to work with them after they um, after they refused the treatment that was being offered, and and there are all these ways in which that process of refusing treatment is a negotiation. Um, another person had um, had um, didn't want a treatment on on um didn't want a, a surgery on a lower limb but did want surgery on on their arms so the consultant agreed to do the arm surgery if they'd have the 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 leg surgery and so it's it's a negotiation and a kind of like a, often a bargaining sort of exercise where the sort of the, the the power and the access to knowledge and the are, are, um all those things that kind of not equal if you see what i mean so Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, this, this this resonates incredibly strongly with with the the review of the Mental Health Act as well about negotiating there in terms of you know uh, uh, seeking to cement the idea that you should be able to say, well, I want X, which I recognise you may not think is as clinically good as Y, but mm -hmm. it's the thing I can cope with. You know, I can yeah. cope with the side effects of X, but I can't cope with Y. And I just sorry, Jill, you were going to say. So I just wanted to say that that was that was kind of something that exactly came up, um, that that almost that exact thing, and and it was, it really touched me. Sort of looking back through the data, because what I found was that the person who, the, the person who was a patient, um, was talking about how they knew their their body, if you like, they knew their own kind of internalized embodied experience. Um, but that was up against the the kind of the clinical knowledge that, that the treating clinician had and it it seemed so it seemed to kind of encapsulate so much about certainly about my experience of disability that that our own view of ourselves and our bodies and our experiences is so often kind of put to the bottom of the pile um it's a kind of it's kind of like it's a real to me it's a real epistemic well epistemic injustice and epistemic trauma that we we kind of 
it's always the thing that that is most easily contested most easily challenged or dismissed whereas medical knowledge seems to be seems to have a, a kind of currency to it that we just can't compete with i mean this negotiate the the, the, the negotiation you're discussing here is as it were real time where mm. you've got the person's got capacity to make the decision yeah so i'm just trying to frame this sort of push this forward or think it forward how does that then translate into advanced decision making where by definition an adrt advanced decisions refuse treatment is only relevant at the point where you don't have capacity so i'm just trying to project this this idea of you saying that in to some extent it's it's not really right to identify it as a blanket no to things mm. really a conditional no but or i would rather and I'm just yeah. trying to project that forward into the bit about advanced decision making. How does that, what does that then tell us about? So um, there are kind of, there are quite a few points to make there, I think. Um, I think um, one thing, well, this is, this is a personal, I'll get my, my personal sort of bit in, that actually um, we tend to think about advanced decisions as being things that are relevant in the future whereas actually to me they have a kind of a contemporaneous currency as well in the sense that once for example one of the treatments that i've refused i've refused because it's a treatment that i've had in the past um and it was so horrific that i know i don't ever want it to happen again so in refusing that i've I've got this, the, the comfort now of knowing that I'm never going to be in a position where I'm being given that treatment and I'm not in a position to, to stop it. And that was one, that was something that among the, the people that I spoke to who had um, experience with the mental health system, they tended to be in general kind of more, more on board with the idea of advanced decision making because it really fitted with that experience of repeated sort of treatment episodes fluctuating capacity and the idea of kind of having experience of the treatment and knowing that you want to refuse it and I think that that also speaks to one of the the issues that I guess kind of the maybe sort of the elephant in the room that that is always there when when we talk about advanced decisions and disability is the kind of that question of um I mean, actually, I um, um, when I was when I first started my PhD, I, I kind of guessed I guessed edited a special issue of um, York the York Policy Review, which is a, a graduate student-led um, journal at York, um, on the topic of mental capacity. And one of the contributions was um, an essay by um, an undergraduate sociology student, Lois McMillan, and the title of it was "Are Advanced Decisions Always Ableist?" um and it's kind of that to me that is the sort of the elephant in the room that is the the kind of the biggie sort of mm -hmm. is it possible to make an individual decision about not wanting to have a treatment in the future without that being seen as a judgment on the lives of people who maybe are already living with that particular that particular treatment um and that was something that did come through as a as a concern in 
in my data um, to the in the sense that I mean I mean for one thing that whole idea of, of kind of judgments on quality of life through a kind of ableist or, or disabledist sort of lens was a real concern of most of the the people that I spoke to um, in fact actually that that spoke to kind of one of the the kind of headline views about the idea of advanced decision to refuse treatment because a lot of them wanted actually to be able to make sure in advance that they would have access to treatment because for them the bigger concern was the idea of not being given treatment you know the kind of having the dnr slapped on them so to speak because of judgments about what their quality of life must be um, and i think that's that's a very real part of the discourse for, for disabled um, people approaching this topic. Um, and I think, so I, there's kind of two things that I pick up on there. I think the first one is, this was my main concern going into this, this topic because my, my personal thinking, I'd, I'd got to a point where, I mean, the, part of my thinking was really coming through having followed, um, the, the Paul Briggs case and the judgment there and, and the kind of issues, obviously Paul Briggs didn't have an advanced decision, but there was some discussion about in the judgment about what would have happened had he had one. And that was where I began to feel kind of quite troubled about the idea of if I make an advanced decision because I don't want to either live my life in the way that, that Paul Briggs' prognosis was or um, because I don't want to have specific treatments, is that me making a value judgment on people who I know personally who have, for example, got profound and multiple intellectual impairments? And I felt really strongly in my gut that it absolutely didn't. It, it wasn't me making a judgment on those people. So I wanted to kind of unpick that. Um, and for me, the kind of the headline was that it's about autonomy and self-determination. You know, the kind of the, the Evelyn Beatrice Hall quote that, you know, I can, I can kind of, um, I can detest what you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. You know, um, having read the the case, um, the judgment that was handed down yesterday, and what we're calling the Stoma case, the MSP case, um, there's a lot in there about the the kind of reported views of MSP on disability that I would disagree with, but my thinking then went well we can't be in a position where in order to secure the liberation of disabled people we are oppressing a group or an individual and expecting them to go through a treatment that they actually don't want or to live a life that they don't want you can't you can't secure your liberation at the at the cost of other people's oppression um and to get to the more positive to get to a more sort of positive sort of pragmatic point one of the things that came out of my data really strongly was the idea that people were very interested and keen in the idea of actually discussion about advanced decision making um, and information coming from disabled people and disabled people's organisations um, for a few reasons. So firstly, because of the idea that actually the sort of the the recommendations about or the or the information about individual treatments and refusals might be coming from a much more um sort of disabled disability informed perspective so 
maybe people who, who'd had the treatments, but also people who shared similar sort of views and perspectives on um, disability and disability rights. Um, but also because it kind of felt maybe safer in the sense that we weren't, we, it was clear that we're not starting from that position of having to justify disabled quality of life. Um, so there are kind of lots of reasons and also um, the, the idea of kind of um, the sort of very practical issue of kind of um, overcoming some of the sort of impairment related barriers. So things like how you present the information um, in terms of um, access um, access to for people who use screen readers or um, people who need information in different formats, that kind of thing. So overall from from my my data and my research that the kind of i guess to sum it up um there's very much a sense that disabled people the disabled people that i spoke to had um a lot of the same concerns that non-disabled people do so issues about um the sort of the the new person concern if i make a decision now um how will I, how do I know that that's what I want in the future? I might be a different person um, if I've lost capacity, that kind of thing. Um, those are the same things that non-disabled people experience. So it's definitely not a question of saying that disabled people need a completely different discourse, if you like. Um, but it, it was very clear that those issues and those discussions were happening in this context of um, where disability was a very real issue, a very live issue, um, in a way that I think it's fair to say people felt was kind of obfuscated in the very individual model of advanced decision making, as it as it was kind of as they were experiencing it in the literature that I'd sent them, um, and the kind of the how to look at how to sort of square those two. Um, was very much looking at actually the disabled people's movement having a stake in in the kind of um, in the information sharing and the support and things. So, um, oh, yeah. Thank <laughs> you, Jill. I I I I have gone over my self-appointed rule that there's that these are supposed to be twenty minutes because that was just so fascinating and so important to hear that I just I think it'd be inappropriate to to, to stop it. But what if people want to learn more? You mentioned your blog, which is fantastic. Yeah. Can you please just plug it for, for literally thirty seconds? So how can people find it? And I'll put a link to it on my on my website as well. I will. My cat's desperate to make an appearance. Um, <laughs> just one second. Good. And it's very right. important we have yeah. cat-based interventions. <laughs> yeah. So um, my blog is on my website, which is voicespaces.co.uk. Um, there's all my stuff there. I, I've actually, um, it's a good time to plug it because this last Sunday I've started um, my own sort of new project, which is that I'm blogging every week towards the end of my PhD. I'm doing autistic PH diaries, um, which is everything you wanted to know about the emotional turmoil of finishing a PhD. Um, it's all in there. So it's, and that's going live from last Sunday. So yeah. Brilliant. Um, well, Jill, um, thank you so much. Um, people, I have learned so much, and I know that people listening to this will have learned so much. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop recording now, and thank you very much to everybody for listening.